All right, what I was saying is that we got, today we have one of the most thoughtful, balanced, interesting, and accessible scholars in the history of Islam. When I say accessible, I mean by that you can understand his works. It's very easy to understand what he's saying. He's the most versatile scholar. Probably, I think, he's the most versatile in all of Islamic history. Right? Because in order to be even in the conversation of Islamic history, you need to be popular. Right? Common sense says that. You need to be well known. If we're going to talk Islamic history, then part of that is you need to be well known. So, um, he, he is extremely well known. And as you're going to see, he's so thoughtful, and that thoughtfulness, not thoughtful like, oh, how are you feeling? No, not that thoughtfulness. Thoughtful, I mean, he's really thinking very deeply about things. Yet, at the same time, he never gets lost in details and nuance, which is one of the common pitfalls of scholars, is that because of their short-sightedness and because of their lack of experience, they're, they're, they're just, um, I don't know how to say it, they get lost. Scholars can get lost in their ideas. All right? And you read their works and you're like, what is he saying? Scholars can get lost. They get carried away by the tide. And they become useless. No offense. Imam al-Haddad said that himself. Useless. So our scholar today that we're talking about from Saviors of Islamic Spirit, which you could buy at MeccaBooks.com, is Abu al-Faraj ibn al-Jawzi. I'm telling you, one of the most thoughtful. You will just... Every page, number one, anybody can understand his works. He, he does not speak, I mean, there are scholarly terms he uses. But he doesn't go up and around and all that stuff. As Abu Niyaz says, Abu Niyaz says, lost in the sauce. As some people, some scholars get lost. And you're like, what? Hold on, what are we saying? What are you saying? It's like, am I supposed to be just be intimidated? No. Right? Scholarship if you can't, if people can't benefit from it, right, if you can't read it, if the scholar got carried away, he's useless. So he's a scholar, right, who hasn't gotten carried away. He's a scholar who's extremely, extremely accessible, is the word that we like to use, that you can understand what he's saying. Yet at the same time, scholars benefit greatly from his work, like scholars themselves. And he has a major, very important work in hadith. And because of his versatility, he often has, I don't know if it's hyperbole, but sometimes like a bit of an extreme in his scholarship, which shouldn't be confused with an extremism in himself. He's not extreme in himself. But he, he's, because he's a scholar and an orator, and he deals with the masses, and he deals with non-scholars from the elite and the poor, he keeps things simple. He keeps... So he, he doesn't always go into nuance, and some people view that as an extreme, because to him, he creates binaries in many cases. Right. And, he, and some people view that as an extreme. Right. So today's topic, Ibn al-Jawzi. All right. Let us start off with, and we got our, our little um, 
Abu al-Faraj ibn al-Jawzi, his name is. Okay. He was born 38 years after Sayyidina al-Imam Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. Right, we're going to put up the uh, slide, the sides. Uh, 38 years after Abdul Qadir al-Jailani was born, Ibn al-Jawzi was born. Right. And he also took life in Baghdad. So he was part of the, 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 the life of the, or the scholarship of the people of Baghdad. Okay. That's what Ibn al-Jawzi's career, his entire career was spent in Baghdad. And physically speaking, he was someone who was well endowed. His height was average. His look was, uh, uh, he was handsome. So he was essentially very well endowed physically. He was healthy. Okay. And he was somebody who, he, if there was anything in life that had any value, he was involved. Okay. He was involved in that. He, he used to say he used to take care of his health. This is because you need a healthy body in order to achieve scholarship. But as a youth, he wasn't average. He was completely cerebral as a young boy. And one of the things about him, he never played. Like he said literally in his youth, he never, ever, ever once went to watch jugglers or played with the boys. Now this in a sense... Um, in a sense, like that, that's uh, not always healthy because you're, you sort of lose touch, right? You sort of lose touch. If you, 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 don't, you can't relate to people if you never engage in what they engage in, right? But nonetheless, overcome that. He was somebody who said that when kids loved the jugglers or wrestlers or whatever poets, or whatever it is that kids loved, his passion was Hadith scholars. And he followed them around everywhere. Wherever a Hadith scholar was, he would run to it, run to him. And he said that he had in his house, from his childhood, a pile of dustings from, from, the, from the pens that they used to use. In the old days, they used to use a piece of wood, that, like a tube of, of wood. No, it wasn't wood, it would be like... Um, um, what's the uh, it would be a, there, there are different different like reeds hollow reeds and then you slice it so it slices down so that's the first slice you make and then you cut it into not a V but I don't know how to describe it imagine you cutting it down to a V but then cut off the point of the V at a slant so you end up it goes down on both sides but it slants then you put a little uh, slit in that horizontal area and then so when you push down there could be they, there could be a movement between the two the ink sits in the middle the ink rests in the middle there and then when you write all right the ink comes out when you push down the ink comes out and then you shape it because it's slanted you can shape it for you can go from broad to thin that's the eastern reed the western reed is not a tube at all and it's not slanted. It's half. A, it's just a slice of wood that they go break it down into a V, but then make the bottom into like a ball, round out the bottom. And that's why the Maghribi script 
has no thick to thin lines to it. It's all one stroke, right? Like one rounded stroke. That's the difference between the Maghribi and the Mashriqi. Mashriqi being the Eastern and the Western reads. All right, so now when we talk about Ibn al-Jawzi, this is a very different person from Ibn, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah. Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah came way later, a couple hundred years later, in Damascus, Syria. And he is the number one student of Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn al-Jawzi is completely different. Abu al-Faraj, Ibn al-Jawzi is a different person altogether. He's higher up in the chain of Hanbalis. And he has a different aqidah from Ibn al-Qayyim and Ibn Taymiyyah. Or, or we should say they had a different aqidah from him. Ibn al-Jawzi is a Hanbali who was a mufawwid and a refuter of the anthropomorphic interpretations of things. And he has a, a book on this and that's why he's a hero to the Ash'ara even though he's not an Ash'ari. He, he doesn't follow the Ash'aris in all of their usul. But in the most important conclusion, which is the divine attributes, he's on point and he has the strongest book on it. It's called Daf'ah. Shubah at Tashbih bi akaf tanzi the refutation of the uh, uh, the errors or the shuba the confusions of anthropomorphism with the best of uh, transcendence tanzi so so on that point he's polar opposites of Ibn al-Qayyim who used to say things such as ar-rahman uh, uh, um, al-arsh istawa istawa means sitting down where that's something that's not even in the Arabic language, as Said Fuda uh, makes clear. It doesn't, it's not even in the Arabic language that istiwa is sitting. No, istiwa is completeness. The word istiwa means completeness. Okay? Meaning on all of his creation, he's in complete control. So that's the interpretation of that. But he is somebody who, Ibn al Jawzi was a hadith scholar primarily his first love is hadith but here we go on how ibn al-jawzi made himself different from everybody else because he he looked at life and he says i cannot f- find value in being a hadith scholar if you also don't know the fiqh rulings because what's the point of knowing all these hadith if you don't know how they're applied, right? And what is the value of being a fiqh scholar, a scholar of, of the law, if you're also not up there with the top ascetics and worshipers who have a light in their heart? So what's the point of knowing God's law if you don't have nearness to God? And what is the point of having nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm benefiting myself, and not benefiting the people. So therefore, you're still incomplete. You need to have da'wah. And he did da'wah to Muslims and non-Muslims. And it is said that throughout his life, 20,000 Jews and Christians of Iraq entered Islam. Okay. And over hundreds of thousands of the city of Iraq considered him to be their imam and the leader of their tawbah. Okay. Or the, the spur of their tawbah. And then he said, though, that, and I'm going to get to it here, but the theme, one of the major themes here is the balance of Ibn al-Jawzi and that he would always see that if, even if I perfect this silo of the deen, 
this silo is useless without that silo. And this, that silo is useless without the one next to it. Okay? And, so, and not only in the deen, but in life itself. Because as we're going to see here, he says, I don't like to be indebted to anybody. But I like to write books. How can I write books if I have to go make my own money? Right? So you, it, something's going to give here. And then if I make my own money and I get busy with that, it clouds up my heart. And I can't calm my heart with the calmness of worship. But so if I take a little bit away from making money and I calm my heart with the calmness of worship, then I have to be isolated. Then I don't give due to my family. I'm like ignoring my family. So he said that he considered himself to be of those who are the most ambitious in life. Like there is nothing that he did that was ever 50%. Everything that he tried to do, he put a high ambition to it. But because of his balanced uh, approach to things, he himself admitted, what I'm shooting for is the best, but I'll never attain it. Because he wants almost like a perfect balance of everything. Right? Now, if you're on Instagram, hop over to YouTube, Safina Society YouTube channel, because when we're on the, um, uh, the sidebar, half of the Instagram doesn't show up. So go over to YouTube. YouTube is really the place where this, is, this live stream is happening. Okay? And these sidebars are beautiful too. So we can't resist doing the sidebar. So, speaking about his biography, where do we get things about his biography from his work Sayyid al-Khatr which is the hunter or the uh, capturing of thoughts and al-Khatr is like the very subtle thought that we all have these subtle thoughts that we might not actually bring up right and so the Sayyid al-Khatr is the, his, his biograph biographical account is taken from there okay so his first and number one love is the cerebral that's the core. So he said, I never tired of reading books. I've read over 20,000 books as a student. And I don't know how to, do, how to read a book except cover to cover. Like, oh, it doesn't go 50% on a book. It doesn't leaf through a book. Cover to cover. Okay, I have a tenacious memory. And I love reading the stories of the pious scholars to see the degree by which they would worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and devote themselves. Yet at the same time, he had, uh, he says, I came to know of the erudition, the erudition, like the, the beautiful stringing together of language that the scholars put forth and were able to move the hearts of the reader. Okay. So he himself began mimicking them. He began to mimic these scholars and he began to write himself, right? And he began writing a lot as a youth. And it is said that he has over 1,000 epistles and books. So an epistle is a very short book, like an essay. Like maybe up, even up to as little as five pages, maybe to 20, 30, 50 pages, but not a book. Like a booklet, basically. So he has over 1,000 separate publications and of course we don't have all of them okay so he said hadith was my number one study and that's why the the great writers Siyuti, ibn al-jawzi 
and Nawawi, well, you have to have a lot to write about. And that's why they're hadith scholars, right? So if you notice, what is Imam Nawawi? Yes, he's a faqih, but he's a hadith scholar, right? And Siyuti, hadith scholar. And Ibn al-Jawzi, hadith scholar. Ibn al-Qayyim, hadith scholar. So this is what they focus on. They focus a lot on hadith, and that's what gives them so much to write. Now, he became a hadith scholar, then he realized, if I, what's the point of studying hadith if I don't know their application? So he became a Hanbali faqih. And he's a major faqih of the Hanbali madhab. Okay. I don't think that he's used in the madhab today. Like whenever I talk to Hanabila, they don't utilize him in the madhab today in the way that they would utilize others, right? Or that he's constantly quoted. No, I don't, I don't think he is. But like I, the Hanbalis that I've spoken to, they don't utilize him in that way. But he himself at the time was a major Hanbali jurist, Okay. Now, here's what happened to him. He began to become a very popular preacher. And he began, he, because he spent more time with the scholars than the spiritualists, he ended up, what ended up happening with him is that he got caught up. He got caught up. And what happened with him was as follows. An amazing admission that he says which I posted on Twitter and Facebook. He says, My lectures and discourses, as soon as I, he became of age, he started becoming a speaker. My lectures and discourses appear to have been quite effective right off the bat. As soon as he started, people were just in love with it. And he then says, High officials, chiefs, and the wealthy began paying homage to me. And they put themselves at my service. And they would invite him. And I was inclined towards them as they inclined towards me. I kept their company. But in their company, okay, I began to lose the sense of peace and grace that I had in my youthful days. As a youth, right, he was in peace and he was in Sakina and everything. Because when you don't mingle with people, it's very easy to follow the right rulings. Uh, by the way, right, we have a split screen for that. Yeah, yeah, you could stick it in the split screen. So when you're when you when you're youth, when you're somebody who doesn't have anything to lose and no responsibilities and no connections, it's very easy to fo to follow any opinion you want. But when you have to deal with people, you have to start weighing things. Well, I'm trying to convince him of this. Um, trying to give him dawah. Uh, I have responsibilities. They attend my lectures. I don't want to turn them away. You start to have to balance things. And that's why extremists are always by themselves. They never have to be with anybody. Like, they can, actually. If you, if you want to take an extreme position, you have to cut off friends. And usually people who are already in those scenarios, they're able to take extreme positions. So he himself says that he made the decision as they uh, inclined to him. So he's like, oh, wait, this is a great chance for Dawah. Let me incline towards them. Let me start going to their gatherings. Now, of course, the rich and the powerful, they're not, firstly, they're not all scholars. That's the first thing. And because they're not all scholars, they may not know stuff and they may make basic mistakes. 
Not only that, the world offers them, like they have opportunities. They have chances to enjoy life. And a lot of times, there's haram in that. There's sinfulness in that. Okay? So he's involved now in company that's sinful. If not sinful, doubtful. So what does he say here? He says here that gradually, very slowly, my specious and legally profound reasoning found justifications for the doubtful. Began to justify doubtful matters. Okay? Began to accept what he never used to accept in the past. And this, he says, slowly darkened his heart until I was in a state of restlessness and disquietude. That was my default state. Although my sermons, okay, because of the, my sermons bore a mark of anxiety, many people repented for their sins. Like, he was still sincere. Okay? And his sermons were filled with this, this restlessness. And it shook the people up. And they made a lot of tawbah. Now, who... There's, some, there's a wisdom behind this. If a, if, a, if a person is sinful and he's got to give a speech, he's essentially going to give a speech to himself. And he's going to talk about tawbah. Because that's what he needs. But other people benefit from that too. And that's what happened. He said, so many people repented for their sins, from their sins. And they reformed themselves. However, my own guilt weighed very heavily on my own conscience. Okay. And he became, he felt very guilty about this. I became more and more disturbed and there seemed to be no way out. Why there seemed to be no way out? Because he's so busy. He's wanted. And he has to, he has to go give dawah to these people, to all the people, the, the, uh, the common and the elite. He's got to give dawah to them. He's got to do all these things. Okay? So where is he going to get the time to go and reform himself? I'm telling you, that's why COVID-19's lockdown was so important for busy people. It allowed them to just sit down and think. And, and it took, I would say, it took a good six, seven months to actually settle your mind. That's how long it takes. Human beings, they're not just light switches, right? Let's say you get thrown in jail or we get thrown in COVID. Well, the first, if you got thrown in jail, for example, the first year you're going to be fighting your trial, right? Then the second year you're going to be like, all right, I got to make a new life for myself in the jail. It'll take you a, a while to, for everything to completely settle in a new world. Right? A new mental and spiritual world for you. Likewise, in COVID-19, the first impetus was, how do we keep the community connected? How do we learn to connect online? What programs can we do? And I would say for the first four months, I was as busy as anything. Like you're, you're, you're not physically moving out of the house, but we're still as busy as anything. That Ramadan that we had, because... The uh, uh, idea of going onto the computer seems, at face value, to be so easy. You feel you have to do a lot of different things, right, in order to, to, to make up. 
So we scheduled so many Zoom sessions, different groups, and then long Zoom sessions that started an hour before Maghrib, then went on pause, still screened during iftar, and then uh, after break, a little talk before Aisha, then we put another still screen, then another uh, close it out after Tarawih, and then a segment after Fajr, and then a segment around Dhuhr, and a different with a different group, then a different group around Asr, and I realized like, and then there's there's no weekends in Ramadan, Ramadan you don't five days a week and then sleep for two days, and then go back at it. No, seven days a week, literally, like on the on the day of Eid. I was like so knocked out. I was like shaking from exhaustion. You ever have like your muscles are jittering from exhaustion? Like you are so, you can't even sleep. You're so tired. You cannot even sleep. And that was the weird, it was interesting. Subhanallah, Allah's, I always have good memories of everything. Even bad things. Like I look back on it with a good memory. It was so exhausting that Ramadan because there is no breaks at all. And, uh, I didn't know that hopping on the computer eventually could exhaust you, but there's no single like 14 hour break, even eight hour break. There was no eight hour, every four or five hours back on the machine, back on the machine, back on the computer. And then that Eid, I was just like fried, like a human being who was fried on a skewer. And you don't think about that because you're just on the computer the whole time, but, but it is. And it's on the computer, but not satisfying, right? It's not satisfying. It's just like, okay, I logged, I logged in time. Yeah, I logged in time. And maybe some people in the chat section were happy, right? That's the, the best thing. Because how, how do you know that you're having an impact unless people write in the chat or say something? So, so that was that. But then after about five, six months, then the novelty of Zoom wore off. And now people just stopped logging on. I stopped logging, right? Everyone was just tired of it. And it was a summer, and now it's end of the summer, and now it's fall. So at that point, that's when I think the solitude actually started taking its impact. It's when the novelty of Zoom and the novelty of the newness of the situation had worn off. It peaked and worn off. Now you're in a complete state where you can actually settle. And that's where I think a lot of people, around that six, seven, eight, nine month period of time, their minds must have really been affected and either they went one or two ways like waste time or make use of this like uh this quietude so ibn al-jawzi saying i'm trapped i'm so busy i have a family i have trade i i have uh subhanallah he has preaching sessions that were in the dozens of thousands people attend his preaching sessions the governor, the Khalifa, is always asking him for things, right? The Khalifa himself uses him for questions, for guests, when they have guests. So he said, where do I go get my piety again? This is what he said. I took to making time to visit the tombs of the pious. There's two benefits for this. Number one, you're in a graveyard. It reminds you of death. Number two... The tombs of the pious are almost like little pieces of Jannah. Because there, they're in Jannah. Like their own Jannah in the Barzakh. Not the Jannah, of course, but Jannah al-Barzakh. Okay? 
I'm going to answer this to see who's calling. Okay, go over there. So he said, And I took to beseeching Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show me the right path and get me out of what I am in. Okay. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered my dua. He helped me and I started to see the errors of my ways and I began to resign away from some of these gatherings. Big dinners, governor so-and-so's coming, rich person so-and-so, come and give a talk, blah, blah, blah. So like saying no to the invitations. I began saying no to the invitations and resigning myself to spend time alone in prayer and solitude. Who's on the phone? Ask her what she needs. Right. Convert. Okay. Man. Was she a new Muslim or what? Did you tell her I'll call her back? Yeah. Okay, we'll call her back. He said, Then I began to see the errors and Allah Ta'ala returned the Sakina back to my heart. Right. Allah Ta'ala re re returned this Sakina back to his heart after he turned to Allah and Allah showed him the errors of his ways. See, every one of us has to have a had or a, uh, a portion of everything in the deen. And you need a good portion of solitude to sit with yourself. You need a good portion of reading, of like putting all your devices on the side and just taking a book and working through the book. Okay? And you need a good portion of socialization. Okay? Because if you're, if you're inept socially, you can't benefit anybody. You also need to know the, uh, the urf of people. If you don't know the customs, you become an oddball. If you become an oddball, nobody marries, marries you into their family. If you don't get married, you get sexual frustration. You're going to commit sins or become an extremist, one or the other. Okay? So, intimacy is part of our religion. You, have, you need it. Human beings need it. That's why one of our Madiki scholars in Al-Ahsa, he, he's always talking and when he ta ta uh, covers the chapter on marriage. One of the biggest plans of Iblis that people don't know about is making marriage difficult. Whether it's the process, whether it's the dowries, whether it's the weddings, whether it's all the customs around it, whether it's all the taboos around it. Like taboos, there are taboos. The taboo of marrying a woman older. The taboo of a woman initiating marriage. Like It's not wrong at all. Like you might think, oh no, she shouldn't. But wait a second, when you have a woman, let's say she's like 40 and she has a child or two, right? She's different than an 18-year-old. 18-year-olds say, yeah, no, you're not going to initiate. They'll come to you. But after you've lived life, you're different now. Say that Khadija, she initiated, right? So they're taboos. Okay, and initiate through an intermediary. Not like you text somebody and initiate it directly. That's not smart for the for either side. That's never smart. Like you never kick the door down and go like this. You're going to get shot. It's going to be a bad experience. You send an intermediary. You bounce it off the wall. Right? It's a bounce pass. Right? Because if the bounce pass goes bad, at least it's not in my face. Okay, so you don't do that stuff. Dowries. I'm not even going to get into the subject of multiple marriages, polygamy. 
right? Which obviously I understand the sisters have, don't like it and they never liked it. It's not like only the modern Western sister doesn't like it. Why in the Arabic world they used to call the second wife the darra, the harm, right? Because she's a harm to the first wife. Say to Hajar and say to Sarah. Did not say to Sarah, she is the, the one of the greatest believing women ever and the mother of so many prophets as a grandmother of so many prophets. She was not happy about this, right? So it's part of human nature that they're not going to be happy about it. Nonetheless, it exists in the Sharia for a reason. And it solves a lot of problems for people. Okay? So to just completely accept it to be shut out completely and that it's not a solution for certain situations, no, that's following whims. I'm sorry. See, there's a lot of things in religion. Religions like this, culture is like this. Every culture is different, right? Certain things the culture loves, certain things the culture hates. The human being is also, we have a nefs like this. Certain things we love and certain things we hate. We don't like to have to quell our anger. You see someone so angry at what someone did say, have sabr, brother. He's going to punch you in the face when you say him that, tell him that. So there are th- certain things our culture likes and doesn't like. We ourselves like and don't like. And same rulings. Some rulings people like and don't like. All right? It's just a fact of life. So this is something that it's, it would be imprudent, wrong, just because the culture doesn't like something to completely block it out of our discourse. And, it, and also the opposite, to try to bother people with it. Like every single time we're going to talk about polygamy, just to bother people. And, you know, look at all the brothers talking about polygamy. What you assumption that you're going to be a line out the door for you if polygamy becomes halal, right? You're not exactly like some kind of mister, whatever. So some of the brothers have to cool it down at the same time, right? They act like if polygamy became like a socially acceptable and legally acceptable thing, that they had a chance at it. It's not always the case, right? You're barely affording one wife. Forget you're having a second wife, right? And so a lot of times it's imagination in their head. But I'm just saying that because I know that some people get triggered just by the word, just by the mention that is part of our religion and that it can have solutions. It can have solutions if it was socially part of the thing. Now, I also am not for experimenting, right? This is like one of those things, if the Islamic society accepts it, I'm not going to be part of the generation that experiments. I would not experiment with my own daughter. I would not experiment with my own life, right? I'm not going to live. I'm going to take a step in, in, in life, real life, that's, that dozens haven't done it before me. This is not a new business that we can take a risk in. Uh, the worst thing that happens in a new business, you go partly bankrupt, right? Well, it's not a big deal. But marriage and divorce and disasters, I'm not getting involved in that, right? So if it gets socially accepted by the ummah, by the community of the Western Muslims, or it's legalized, well, I'm going to be watching them while they do it. I'm not going to put myself in an experiment. And when I say experiment, it means, yes, it is an experiment for us, right? In human history, it's not an experiment, but for us, it is. 100% it is. So when, when a Yemeni sheikh married his second wife, his, uh, his first wife called her father. She said, Father, can you believe he took a second wife? What did the father say? Your mom's a third wife. Your sister's a second wife. Your aunt's a fourth wife. 
What are you complaining about, right? So go talk to your aunt. Go talk to your mom. So that's what I'm saying. There's precedent in the family. Nobody did something wild here. There's precedent in the family. Direct, immediate precedent. All right? That's what I'm talking about. So you're going to put your daughter in that situation? And she says, okay, mom, I need some marriage advice. Well, first wife is saying this. Third wife is saying that. What do I do? (laughs) What do we know, right? We don't know this. We, We don't know anything about this life. Hey, hey, uh, son-in-law, how, how are you doing? Hey, man, I have a question for you, man. What do you do if there's like two tickets on sale, but I only have to take wife number one or wife number two? What do I do? Hey, son, I have no clue, right? Never had this problem before. Click, okay? So that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's smart for anybody to be part of some exper- uh, experiment. What do we tell the government? I don't know. How do I lie about this? How do, I, how do you pass this off? So all of that is what I'm saying is the experimental nature that, no, I'm not getting involved with it. I'm not saying that you're wrong, but you guys go experiment with it. I'll be watching your bloopers and disasters. Probably my whole life will pass by the time. And your successes too. You might have success, right? But you're going to have this experiment. And then, and you know what else? Let me just give you another example. This job that I'm doing here, is it like a job that in high school, high school seniors in Islamic school, okay, what are we going to be? Doctor, accountant, nurse. Oh, I want to be Islamic scholar. Okay, see me after class because that's not a real job. Uh, boom, 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 boom. It's not a real industry that we could say that you can go from middle school, they're preparing you for it. No, it's not a real industry. Where are the institutions? Where are the people who could say that, yeah, I worked at Islamic scholar, I got this contract, this is my retirement fund, all my kids went off to college. It's not a real thing. We're trying to make it a real thing. This is a, a second level experiment, I would say. You know, worst, worst comes to worst, you lose money. And it fails. Right? But we're trying to create an institution here and an industry so that it's quite reasonable that around 8th grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, they say, oh, okay, if you want to be an Islamic scholar and a Dalia, this is how it works, this is how the money works, you earn about this much, and you move on with your life, just like a dentist, an accountant, etc. So there are certain things in real life that you can experiment with. Some people are, have more appetite for risk. I don't have an appetite of something coming near to my personal life. My bank account, no, I don't care, I'll take risks, but personal life, I would have to see people who have done it in certain things. Multiple people have done it. Not just one guy, one outlier. No, multiple people. And that's something that if it ever happens here, um, and it can, if Ogberfeld, the ruling, deemed it constitutional or un- unconstitutional, whatever it was, basically allowed for men to marry and women to marry, then why not three men to marry? If three men to marry, why not one man and two women to marry? So the door could be opened up for polygamy in America. And then some guys are going to do it. I'll sit and watch, right? I'll root for you to succeed. Just be, So I would not get my family involved in something unless I've seen it around. That's what I mean I'm talking about when it comes to um, doing something new in your life. So... How did we even get to that topic? What were we saying? 
What's that? Oh, so he was guarding his heart by, uh, and finally he extracted himself from these gatherings and he calmed his heart once again. Okay? He was able to calm his heart down. Now, the next theme in Ibn Jozi's life is Himma. Himma. All right? Still, some people are commenting upon, upon the thing. You know what else I'm going to look at? I'm going to look at the mental states of people. Right? Just because something is halal doesn't mean the mental state of, let's say, the daughter. You got a teen daughter. She's 15, 16. Life is mom, dad, me, brother, sister. That, that's life. So if an aunt was to come in and move in, that's normal. If a grandma was to move in, that's fun. Wait a second. Another wife? I've never seen this before. What does this mean? Right? They, I want to see their mental state. I want to see that them to come in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the day that it happens, uh, that 5, 10, 20 teens, oh, yeah, they were second wife, yeah, we know how to do this. We know, it's fun, blah, 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 blah. And they, they're mentally normal. That's all I'm looking for. That, that's the time that you would say, okay, this is a, a thing now. So anyway. Uh, so back to the topic is that he concerned himself a lot with him. The issue of him is ambition. Okay. He had ambition. And he said, the greatest trial of mankind is in the, is in the question of ambition. Because you have a fork in the road. You can either say, no, I want to actually live for the moment, have no ambitions. And he admitted, these are the happiest people, but they're only happy in the short term. Years will pass and they will find themselves vapid. There's nothing there. It's an empty, their life is an empty desert. Okay? So he said, those people who are, they just move on and they never use their brains, they never worry about anything, they, they always find themselves like in a chess game caught caught in a corner okay or at a dead end or out of gas so it's not the right way to do things although temporarily it is the best the right the the happiest thing he said but if you have a mind and if you have a spirit you're going to go the opposite route which is the route of ambition and you set for yourself a lofty goal and he said now you enter into a phase where you are never satisfied until you reach your goal and you either reach your goal or you fail to reach your goal Okay, but failing to reach your goal is so risky that you cannot even think about it. It's like when you're climbing a mountain, you can't look down. You got just got to be like a goat. Climb up the mountain. Don't look down. Don't ever think twice. Use your instincts only. Now, let me tell you something. Many people say, listen, be reasonable with your goals so that if you don't meet your goals, then you fall and you fail. I say, you're a person without faith. You're a person without faith. Faith is to go for your goal and have trust that if I fall, Allah will catch me. Meaning Allah will make this easy for me. That's real faith. Okay? That's the right way. I've seen, wallahi, I've seen so many people. They say, all right, go, but go lightly. Right? Because maybe Allah doesn't want it for you. These people are contradicting the truth. They're contradicting everything the Prophet said and they have no faith in their hearts. And they must have been disappointed in the past so they use this as a crutch going forward. Right? So that's how, uh, that's how uh, to view these things. Right, do we need to turn on the, the air on to the camp so it doesn't overheat? 
a weird cam situation. It's not even hot in the room. These European camera companies. Okay. He says, my ambition is quite different. It is an ambition that I know I can never attain. Okay. And he says, lack of knowledge is only attributed to lack of ambition. Knowledge is, it's, doesn't require a genius. Yes, some people could go faster than others. Right? But if you study, you will learn. And all of us must gain technical knowledge and struggle. We must struggle through the tedium of technical knowledge. Because the opposite is struggling with ignorance. And that is far worse. I love the bumper sticker. It says, you think education is expensive? Try ignorance. It's way more expensive. Now he said, it's one of my favorite paragraphs. He says, the ultimate objective of knowledge is to act upon it. Yep. Thus, what I want to be able to do is combine my knowledge with the piety of the likes of Bishr al-Hafi and Maruf al-Karhi, the early Zuhad. But that is hardly possible to accomplish alongside the preoccupation of studying and teaching and other mundane affairs. Not only that, I aspire to teach others, to oblige others. I want to help others, but I don't want to be under their obligation. It means I don't want to be an employee. I don't want to be just be some employee. Okay. My preoccupation with my studies is an impediment to learn to earning. Like either you study or you gain money. Okay? One of the two. But I don't want to be indebted to anybody else. I don't want to be accepting gifts. I don't want to be accepting salary from others. I want to be independent. I ardently desire to marry. I want to marry, right? And if you marry, you must by necessity have children. He says then, and when I have children, and I want to have children, it's a sunnah to have children. It balances your mind. It balances you when you have children. It puts you in touch with the future. Having kids puts you in, put, keeps you current. Okay? It keeps you current because the kids, are, they're, they're in their own uh, uh, life. They're experiencing life for the first time. And they will keep you up to date on things. Whereas if, you're, if you don't have kids, you're, all your memories are of the past. But when you have kids, they laugh at the past. Right? They don't care about the past. Kids care about the present. So the kids will make, will put in perspective that, hey, dad, look, the sports of the 90s, the jokes of the 90s, is not funny anymore. Without them, who would tell you that? Right? The ways of the, the 90s, when you grow up, that's not our way. It's true. We get attached to the past. Right? But kids will shake that off you. And you say, okay, let me throw that all away. And they keep you current. Which there is a degree of silliness when a guy is so current, but he's like 50. You see these guys on scooters, 50-year-old acting like a 20-year-old or acting like a 15-year-old. Like, it looks silly. But that's the importance of kids. So he says, I want to have children. Yet at the same time, this will take away from my ability to write. Right? To write books. And it will take away from my ability to go give dawah to the people. How can I go out and give dawah to people when I have my own people at home who need dawah? Like, you can have students even and listeners, and even murids. But what are your kids? They're your amana. The, the legal category of kids is that they're your amana. In the sight of Allah, He's entrusted you to them. You're going to be asked about them. I'm not going to be asked about 
listeners? Allah's not going to ask me about, oh, why didn't you answer this direct message? Allah's not going to ask me, right? Allah says in the Quran, knock, knock three times, when someone knocks on your door, and you are, if you knock and you're told, go back, then go back. That means the rule, legal ruling is that I never have to answer the doorbell. I never have to answer the phone. I never have to, unless, like, unless there's a known harm, such as I know that it's, it's going to be upsetting to the parent, for example. Then you have to answer the phone. But technically, by Sharia, answering the doorbell, answering the phone, answering texts, answering DMs, zero legal responsibility. I can say, no, I'm not doing it. And I feel no guilt because it's halal for me, all right? No one's right to get their emails answered. Now, you might lose friends and stuff. That's different. But you will be asked about your kids. Why, aren't, why didn't your kid know how to pray when they're 15 years old? Why don't they know how to fast? Did you not prepare them that there's going to be hijab in this picture? Did you not prepare them that there's going to be earning someday? He has to earn. Did you not prepare them to have taqwa? Like you never taught him any of that stuff? You're going to be asked about that. You're not going to be asked about anyone else. So he says, I want children. I want marriage and children. That's going to take away from my ability to do da'wah. Okay? He said, but then what is the value of all this piety if we can't spread it to others? SubhanAllah. It's like a, a circle. Right? It's like a, a circle that wherever you take from one slice, you're going to lose from the other. you take from the other, you're going to lose from the other. So it's a constant need to be balanced, to be balanced out. He said, I also, I enjoy the lawful pleasures of life. He's living in Baghdad. That's almost like living in the best city of the world at that time. He's, uh, uh, there are pleasures of life here. I love to enjoy them. And he was against the excessive asceticism of some of the Persians. He says, but that will take away a little bit from asceticism. And it will require you to make money to earn them. Okay. And if I go out to earn, I lose the contentment and peace of mind. It's a constant non-stop. And if I go and I serve my peace of mind and my heart, I lose the dawa and the earning and everything else. So that's why he said, I have the highest ambition, but my, it is an ambition that will be never be attained, which is like the perfect balance of all. And I'll tell you, the best of people and the best of ways is the way that has a hav, a hav, or is a decent portion of everything. You, you, you should know how to make a buck. You should know knowledge. You should be able to give dawah. You should have a healthy family life. You should have a very healthy spiritual life by yourself with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn al-Jawzi used to take care of his health at a time where that was not a popular thing. He said, I take care of my health by moderation in everything I eat. Everything is moderation. Health... All, most of health issues happens in the stomach. So he says, I have moderation in everything I eat. That's his own health philosophy. That's it. That's how simple it is. So he says, all of my aspirations, okay, have mutually opposing ends. It's a seesaw, right? Imagine a seesaw, but you have like 10, 10 parts to the seesaw. You got to keep them all up. So if you push down on one, you lift up the other one. You got to go lift, push down the other one. The other one comes up. All right. It's one of the, th the, the, the philosophies behind our organization here. 
is that the way this organization was built, the philosophy in my head, okay, with tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is not by looking at who's the best, is looking at where their errors are. Like, where's the Achilles heel of that organization? Where's the Achilles heel of this organization? Where's the Achilles heel of X or XYZ organization? Because there'll be great da- da'wah movements, either by individuals or organizations. Amazing da'wah movements. It's not about imitating the best. It's by looking at their, his Achilles heel. Okay? And if, I could, if you could cover that Achilles heel, cover this Achilles heel, cover this Achilles heel, at that point, you can't be killed. Right? At that point, now, when you move forward like that, there's no Achilles heel. There's no, there, your arm, there's no kink in the armor. And that's the philosophy. That's a beautiful philosophy. So that, because why are soldiers killed? Soldiers killed because he's got a blind spot. What's the point of all your work if you get shot? As one famous person said, I like people who don't get captured. <laughs> you remember that one? Ryan, you remember that? How oh, you remember that? It was a hilarious joke, but that's one of those jokes where, like the New York joke that it's, it's so awful. That's the funny part of it, yeah. The funny part of it is like, how could you say that? Like that's a that's only a uh, 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 like an uh, East Coast style of humor. Other people think I was so terrible, right? To someone to say that, but it's as a joke. It's it's actually pretty funny, my opinion. All right? Of course, it's a horrible sentiment to say about like a soldier. But anyway, point being is that what is the value of this dawah if it got shut down? What's the value of your organization if you burned up in flames, right? So why did you burn up in flames? Why did you get shot down? Why did you die out? Why did you run out of money? All these failed da'wahs provide us knowledge, practical knowledge. So we solve that problem, solve this problem, solve that problem, solve that. So you have no, your lineup from the first batter to the ninth batter, all right, is solid. And I love the, the base, there's a baseball philosophy that, if every single person in your lineup is reliable to hit a single, you win every game. You don't need to ever worry about home runs. Just a single. Because think about it, you have an infinite loop of singles. It'll be slow, not exactly fireworks, but you, no one can get you out. Like, it'll be really hard to get out. And that's basically what happened, came up in, in a... Uh, study of statistics of baseball that if, if you just if everyone in our lineup is reliable to get on base either getting a walk getting hit by a pitch or hitting a single right that's the only statistic that matters just getting on first base in, in, by any means necessary by those three means you have a team that can't lose right even if you ne- have zero home runs the whole season who cares you keep hitting singles, you're just going to keep going around the bases and no one can get you out. And that's the philosophy. So if you look at his balance, this is what he's constantly wrestling with. I want all these things because the prophet did all these things. There's a wisdom in all these things. So that's why he said, it's the best ambition, but it's one that we'll never perfect it. But once you get there, if you get there and you do well at it, you have an unbeatable operation. And that's what we're shooting for, both as individuals and as a community here. Okay. He says, he keeps talking about his ambition. I relish 
the night vigil. I relish to be up alone at night with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if I also want to teach and make money, I have to wake up early. How do I balance this? Right? Subhanallah. That's why I said he's, so, he's extremely thoughtful. If I want to enjoy the good things of life, how do I keep my heart from rusting? Interaction and education with people is necessary, but it takes away from the sweetness of dhikr, the sweetness of dua. Right? Spiritual decline is an unbearable thing for me, but dealing with people and making ends meet are necessities. So he says, because of his thoughtfulness and his ambition, I have endured these strains throughout my entire life. Like I've endured that if I do this, I'm going to lose out on that. If I do that, I'm going to lose out on this. It seems that the path of success and perfection lies in this struggle of balance. The struggle of balancing it out. And sometimes everything needs to be balanced, even balance itself. Right? There are times where the only way to balance yourself out is to go to an extreme in one field of life and fulfill its, its due. Sometimes you have to stay up an all-nighter, right? An all-nighter with snacks and computers and papers all over the place. There's no spirituality in it. There's no health in that. It's not healthy. But you have to achieve something, right? You got to do something. You got deadlines. You have to work sometimes. And there are times where your heart is getting so rusty, you must say no to everything and sit with Allah by yourself. Must. No matter who is asking you or calling you. So that is Ibn al-Jawzi's philosophy of balance. Okay. Right, so the two themes that we talked about so far was Ibn al-Jawzi's ambition and his philosophy of balance. Okay. As a scholar, he was extremely balanced in that he wrote books and he gave speeches. He spoke to the common people. And one of his greatest subjects that he is considered like a master in is the plots and the tricks of Iblis. Right? The plots and tricks of Iblis is something that he wrote a lot about. And of course, this is in his famous book, Talbis Iblis. Talbis Alaps is to cover something with something else to confuse something. Okay? To confuse something. That's what lips is, right? To cover something up. So Iblis covers up a plot by uh, tricking you in some way. Let's take a look at his first his first uh, subject. Scholars. The scholars and the jurists have occupied themselves with vain discussions. And they drift. Now listen to this. This is actually really true. All right. Rai, you're going to discover this true. That the scholars have busied themselves with vain discussion to the point that they drift slowly away from the scripture, from the Quran, the hadith, the biographies of the Prophet and the biographies of the companions. You never see this in their discussion anymore. And they're only discussing the details in textbooks, in texts and manuscripts. So therefore they have gone far away from the softening effect on the souls. 
their words and their speech has no effect on the souls anymore. And this is extremely true. That scholars have this, there is an ability, a slippery slope, to get so into the details of a topic and the history of a topic that you have completely not mentioned the Qur'an, the biography of the Prophet, the ascetic ways of the companions for so long that your heart has become hardened, right? And now your scholarship no longer benefits anybody. Man needs the remembrance of Allah on every subject, in every gathering, okay? So that you can end the stories of the Sahaba so that they can create a longing for the success that they had, right? There is no doubt, he says, ethical issues, legal issues are not beyond the scope of the Sharia, but alone they're insufficient in achieving the ultimate objective, okay? How can people be expected to follow such an, a scholar whose soul is dry. He professes with his words the law, but he has failed to attain the ecstasy and the proximity to Allah that the law is meant to protect. Like, why do we have a law? It's to protect something. What is it protecting? Ecstasy. Nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This munajat, this light in your face, the law is protecting that. You have a great law, but nothing to protect. Right? You built a great house and a great gate, but there's no humans in the house. Wonderful home, no wife. Wonderful bedroom, no kids. What's the point? Okay. So same thing, he talks here about, he says, I love the teacher who said, I prefer a, a discussion that softens my heart over the study of 100 legal rulings of Shuraih al-Qadi. Surayh is the famous judge that lived in the time of Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib. Tabi. Now, he critiques preachers. Let's, we go from scholars to preachers. The, what is the difference? The preacher preaches to the common man. The scholar teaches students. Okay? You need both in a society. And the number one you need in a society is the scholar. Right? You need the preacher. You need the ascetic. The ascetic is the one who... He, he polishes the actual jewel. He's guarding the real thing, the jewel. Okay? You need all these things. You need the financier, you need the administrator. The preacher is the salesman of religion. He's trying to convince people. Okay? This is called wath. He says, now most preachers, they fall into embellishment, trying to get your attention at every turn. And they just go to stories that catch attention, not stories that benefit you and teach you how to avoid sins and what is obligatory and what is not. So that someone will leave with a heightened emotion, but he has no knowledge of what his obligations are in religion. So what does he do with that heightened emotion? It's, so, it's just hot air. Okay? Because he's going to continue living a life of sins. So the preacher must not limit himself to stories. And he must teach what is obligatory and what is forbidden. The fundamentals of fiqh. Okay? Both preachers and teachers, scholars and preachers, can test their sincerity. That if another preacher comes in and takes away the audience, if he's sincere, he should say, Alhamdulillah, the work of Allah is being done. 
and I can rest and go worship Allah by myself. The sincere preacher says this. The sincere scholar says the same thing. If he, one is, is more knowledgeable and he has taken the audience away, he should say, Alhamdulillah, the job of da'wah is complete. I can now turn to my Lord. Right? And worship my Lord. And the only upsetness he should have is why am I not that good? I should go learn more. But he should have no envy to the other one. Right? The only thing he should say to himself is, why am I not uh, as good? I should learn more. Now he talks about kings, rulers, and administrators. Now for us, what does this imply? I don't think we have any kings in the audience or rulers, right? Uh, but we may have administrators. We have, what's his name? Prince. Prince Matthew. Ma Prince Matthew? Gaming. Prince, oh, yes. What are you? Uh, Prince of Nigeria? You know, Nigeria's got a lot of princes. They always email us and say that they are moving to America and they need a bank account. He says the administrators oftentimes look at administrative logic and forget barakah. This is how true is this? The administrator looks at, well, the logic, the, the reasonable or the uh, systematic approach to things, and he forgets barakah. How true is that? Hey, brother, I need zakah. I'm dying. Okay, fill out a form. Because if we always just give out cash from the box, it's not a system. It's not a system, but this one guy is dying, right? Okay, well, we have to wait. We have a meeting. Oh, okay, when can I get my zakah because I'm dying? Well, today is the second of the month. We just had our first zakah meeting on the first of the month. We'll have our second zakah meeting on the 15th of the month. And if we don't get to your application, then you wait to the next zakah meeting on the first of the month. Okay, well, I guess you'll be paying for my funeral then, right? <laughs> SubhanAllah. So the, the, the system, the system takes place over the barakah. They lose the barakah, right? They want to systematize everything. But sometimes you can't. Okay? They look for political expediency and they forget the sharia. Sometimes the sharia will stall your expediency. It's true. Sharia will be a, th a thorn in the throat of your business. That's if you're ignorant. If you're ignorant. If you're knowledgeable, if you understand, then rizq comes from Allah. It comes from sakina. comes from barakah, from ibadah, from ta'a. Not from your systems. So that's his attack on... Uh, administrators alright and he says they become completely insincere by using the scholars and the righteous just using them to appear pious in everyone else you know, with everyone else all right? to appear pious and to imagine that by just by being nice to one pious person it will erase all my sins okay here he tells a story about, Imam, about Malik ibn Dinar. Not Imam Malik, but Malik ibn Dinar. He says, Once a trader whose transport filled with trade goods had been withheld by a tax collector. So he went to the venerated Zahid scholar Malik ibn Dinar for help. Malik then went to the tax collector, treated, and the tax collector treated him with much respect, saying that he did not have to come himself, and, could set, and the tax collector said, You didn't have to come yourself. 
you could have just send me somebody and I would have released this man, this trader and overlooked his, his debt. So he released the tradesman. Thereafter, the official asked Maddox to make dua for me. Maddox re- re- replied, ask this purse in which you keep your ill-gotten money to pray for you. Like, why would I pray for you? You're stealing from people. Like, you're stealing, you're taxing people what is haram. Right? Uh, Maham is saying, oh, that's a microaggression against Nigerians, perhaps. Okay, so, so Maham is criticizing us for being not aggressive enough. All right, so we need to get a bigger aggression then, I guess. That's what she's saying. Yeah. So we'll, oh, sorry about that, Maham. Next time, I'll try to find a bigger macroaggression against them. Okay. How can I invoke a blessing for someone? You want my du'a? What do you want my du'a for? You got so many sins. What is this, right? Oh, you see this president going to visit the sheikh. He's so respectful to the sheikh. He's kissing his foot. Bro, you got like 50 people in jail, oppressively. You've got deals with interest. You've got deals. What is that? This is symbolism. That's it. It's meaninglessness. Right? He says here, you think that Allah will accept the entreaties of one person while you're feeling a thousand oppressions to others? So he continues. Now, the misguided Sufis, what does he say? They have worshipped Allah well. Until when they hear one melody, their heart moves so much that they then deviate little by little. All they do is melodies. All they do is singing songs. And then, imagining that they want to heighten their mysticism, they use musical instruments. Okay? And they become lavish in their use and concerns with musical instruments, forgetting the Qur'an and the deen and the basics of leaving off sins, that that's what got you to a heightened spirituality in the first place. Is the night prayers, the fasting, the recitation of the Qur'an. And they forgot those things. And they become very uh, lenient with sinners, thinking that this is helping their tawbah. Thinking that this is good for them. Whereas strictness with sinners, public sinners he's saying, is what was actually better for them. Okay. Anybody who is nice to them, they're so soft hearted that they're nice back where sometimes it's not the right place to be. So he he goes on. They go astray in a worse way. There's a worse way than this to go for the Sufi to go astray. How? By sneering at the scholars. For not being as worshipful as they Yet sometimes a scholar can be far better to the society and the community by selling what's Allah, what does Allah love, what does Allah not love, what did the prophet say. But no, what you are, okay, is putting them down because they don't do as much ibadah as them. Here, the Sufi comes upon a scholar and finds him eating during the day. Huh? And he looks down upon him. He's eating during the day because he has to teach, he has to write, he has to think, not like you, subhanAllah, right? He sneers at the scholar, seeing him talking, 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 never making dua and dhikr. Allah. So that's what he critiques the Sufi with. You see how everything's got a balance, right? Now, his style is hyperbole. You have to understand that 
like his style is all these Sufis are this. No, he doesn't mean that. It's just a way to gra- it's a rhetorical method. People have to understand hyperbole. Okay? Arabic Quran is filled with that. The way that the Arabic speaks is with hyperbole. Like and Allah subhanahu those who do this accept those who repent. Right? So there's exceptions, of course. You, if you have any common sense, you understand hyperbole. When we say, you know, all these crazy vegans. I'm sure there's, or uh, no, forget the vegans, they're all crazy. But all these crazy animal rights activists. I'm sure there's one or two decent animal rights activists. All these nut job environmentalists. I'm sure some of them are very reasonable, right? All these academics, Islamic studies academics who are astray and love the Qomalut. Right? And they're progressives. I'm sure many of them are not, right? But it's a rhetorical method, okay? That just to, with a clean, and it's the fools, okay, that on Twitter who take it seriously, who are so academic that they look at every word that you say and judge its accuracy. It's like you're, you don't know where you are, you're not in a place of nuance here. You're in a place where people are scrolling. You need to say what you have to say in 10 words. That's it. So he is a scholar who understands that. And that's why it seems like he's extreme in everything. It's not. He's just painting a broad brush. And everything, his, the rest of his works will offer the exceptions to the others. Let's see what he says about the common Muslims. All right? The common, the masses of Muslims. The com- regular old common Muslim. Okay? What does he say about them? The common Muslims, he says, Satan has misled them all to think that just by attending religious sermons, okay, and saying wow and whoa and amazing and takbir, that they have achieved something in religion. Right? Just by attending a, common, a, a gathering or a talk. He said this is perhaps because the people have been told about the merits of listening to discourses so much, but they don't know the, the purpose is to go home and act upon it. I, I, I've had people in the audience not to criticize. They have attended for 10 years. MashaAllah. That is wonderful. Okay? That's wonderful. Wallahi, it's wonderful. They have not altered one thing in their life for 10 years. So it's not to say that there'd be better without it. No. You know, the smart answer is, well, maybe your sessions aren't good enough, right? <laughs> that's like the smart. No, but, but some people, that's how, they, some people, one year, the person's completely transformed. There are some people that I've seen them, wallahi, I've seen them go from a knucklehead kid who knows nothing to somebody who I would ask questions of fiqh to and questions of aqidah to and questions of deen to it, hadith. Help me research this. Help me give the khutbah here. Help me do that. They've completely transformed in 10 years. And another person has, nothing has changed. Not one thing has changed. This is what he's talking about. Which means that the person, he he contents himself with listening and attending, but never acting. He imagines that, I don't have to do anything. Okay. No effort at home. That's what he's talking about here. They do not appear to be aware that listening is insufficient without action. And he says, I personally know a number of people who have been attending lectures for years. 
They get so excited. They burst into tears. They love the lecture. Yet they persist, cheating in trade, using riba, not covering themselves, unmindful of religious duties, etc. Satan has led them to believe that merely attending these sermons will make up for all of their sins, will atone their neglect and their sins and their omissions of fulfilling obligations. That's the flaw of the common Muslim. So don't fall into it. Take classes and act upon it and put some more weight on the bar. In regard to the rich, what does he say to the rich? Oh. Many of these people spend lavishly on the construction of a mosque or a bridge, but their real goal is to put their name on it. Okay? And to win over the reputation of people as people of piety. And yet, they will ignore the donations that they could give to the poor and the needy that will not get them any attention. And they persist in unlawful trade, imagining that building a mosque will wipe it away. Subhanallah. End of subject on Talbis Iblis. Let's go now to his self-criticism. Because Talbis Iblis, he's taken his Rambo gun on everybody, right? It's true though what he's saying. He takes it on himself too, to show you he's sincere. What does he say? In this book, Sayyid al-Khatr, he admits that he himself has many weaknesses and many mistakes. He criticizes himself for the love of aspiration. That he wants to be the best at everything. He's too competitive. Okay? And he gives account of his mental and emotional states. You've got to love this scholar. He's so human, right? Like he's talking about himself. What most other scholars are just, قال Allah, قال Rasul. Are you a human? Like do you, when you go home, do you wear sweatpants? Right? <laughs> Have you ever encountered this? It's like, does he, when he goes home, does he stretch his feet? Right? <laughs> does he do human things? I don't like the person who's a fake. The Sahaba were not fake. Sayyidina Omar took a nap under the tree. Right? Are you better than Sayyidina Omar? The Prophet ﷺ came out of his house for Salat al-Fajr with the wet stain in the middle of his thobe. What was he cleaning off? He was cleaning off. Well, we don't, the Rasulullah has no najasa. But to teach us, he's cleaning najasa. He did that to teach us. His personal life was right there in the masjid. Subhanallah. Sayyidah Aisha speaks of the personal life of the Prophet. Yes, his personal life must be exposed so we can learn. So he's, he, he's different in that respect. And it may be better for other people to, 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 to hide those. Better for a scholar to have a heba and be a little distant from the people. But there's a degree to that too. Okay. Ibn al-Jawzi speaks of his mental and emotional states, describing the impact of his social experiences with the elite and the common and how they personally impacted him. Okay. And he talks about the wisdoms he learned from the rough and tumble of political life. 
that he had ups and downs in political life with, with all these rich people and these governors. He talks about his dealings with women, wives that he had, friends and servants. The book is extremely sim sincere and simple. Okay. Which marks the first attempt at an autobiography in the history of Islam. One of the first attempts of like a personal autobiography, okay, in the history of Islam. One of his passages here. I saw two laborers one day carrying a heavy beam. Both were humming a song while carrying a heavy beam. One recited a verse, the other listened to it, and would repeat it afterwards, so that it created a melody while they're working. Some people call these work songs. I thought that they must only be doing this to allow themselves to, to, to pass the time. Okay? By singing this song, they made their labor easy. On further reflection, I found that by engaging themselves in singing, it gave their mind some respite, because their job was so difficult. Okay. That this diversion also decreased the consciousness of their burden by making them think about the verses they're talking about, right? So what is our version of that today? Construction workers when they blast like sports radio and they're debating sports, why? Because their job stinks. They hate their job. So by talking about something it, it's a diversion. My attention was diverted from this scene to the burden of the responsibilities and obligations enjoined by the Sharia, like my job, his job as a scholar. Okay? And I thought that the, perhaps the consciousness of these obligations is an even heavier burden okay, on man than carrying a beam. All right? And the great effort of controlling your impulses. Thus, I arrived at the conclusion that one should never cover the path of endurance himself without allowing himself to be refreshed with lawful pleasures. All right? That he said, well, why are they singing? It's because it's so heavy to keep their mind up. Likewise, some matters of the Sharia are heavy. A lot of the prohibitions are heavy. A lot of the obligations are heavy. He said then, we also then, if we're on this path, we should allow ourselves a little bit of respite from this. All right? I wish that we can go more, but we got to go for questions and answers. All right. And get this book with a, so far, one of my favorite biographies, Ibn Josie, from meccabooks.com, coupon code Safina. S A F I N A. A similar story, he says. Bishr al Hafi was going somewhere with a friend. The friend got thirsty and asked Bishr to wait right here so I can get some water from the well. Bishr advised him to wait until they reached the next well and then to the next. After they covered a considerable distance, Bishr told his friend that the life in this world is just like our journey. Okay? In truth, if you're able to hold yourself a little bit, the longer you're able to hold yourself, the faster you'll make it, the better you'll make it. Okay? But if every time you want a break, you take a break, and you want to, some pleasure, you take some pleasure, you'll never fulfill your desires or your goals. Okay. Check yourself 
from the fancies and attractions of this world. Do not let it afflict you and control yourself from it. Bayezid al-Bistami once said, I used to lead my wailing self flooded with tears towards Allah. Then it gradually became familiar with the way and began to forge ahead cheerfully. He meant to say by that, that religious teachings were so difficult, he used to cry. But over time, the human being has a habit of getting used to things. And I got used to it, and now I enjoy it. Okay. In another place, he says, I've seen when hounds pass by wild dogs, the wild dogs bark at them and try to chase them away. Wild dogs are envious of hounds because the hound is dressed in a collar and clothing and has an owner that takes care of him. The wild dog is envious of this. The hound never pays attention to the wild dog. The wild dogs are fat, clumsy, unclean, and untrained. But the hounds are lean, well-proportioned, and they have a mission every day that they get rewarded for. Right? They get rewarded for their mission. Go catch me a rabbit, you're going to get maybe you know, some food. So the hound is not as equal to the wild dog. Likewise is the person of religion who has a lord, his lord takes care of him, sets up his life, and that, that a worshiper knows what he has to do, and he knows that he's going to have a reward at the end of the day. Versus the man who has no religion and no law. He's wild. Okay. Subhanallah. Ajib. He has a dialogue with himself inside Al-Khatr in this autobiography in which he traces incidents and how it affected him later in life okay, and how the impact of meeting other pious people helped him in life. He says, Once I was confronted with a difficulty for which I had to invoke divine blessings and I had to make a lot of supplication. Accordingly, I prayed to Allah with another righteous person. And I felt in my heart, my prayer is about to be answered. But I felt that it was not because of my own dua. It was because of the other person's dua. And I said to myself, Oh Allah, I said to myself, I am aware of my own sins and weakness, which is not allowing my prayer to be answered. But who knows, if Allah did, not, did in fact accede to my own, to my, answered my dua. I felt that although the revered man of Allah who prayed for me was free from those vices that I had, okay, from which I suffered, there's a difference between him and me. And I had a sense of regret and self-reproach because of my sins. While he was always cheerful and happy with Allah, like his reaction with Allah was always cheerful, happy, optimistic. Yet I was like, no, I have sins, I have this and that. Okay? And how we all feel this, right? He then said, it is not infrequent that the broken-hearted confession is more beneficial on occasions like this. That when you look down on yourself, say, man, subhanAllah, like, these people, they're so sinless. They're so pure. And I'm so behind. He said, that moment of brokenheartedness may be more heavy with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the other. But nobody should take this as a green light to stay sinful. Right? Because at that point, you negate it. He says, there's another matter which both of us stood on equal footing. Neither of us solicited the favor of Allah on the basis of our own deeds. Okay? So if the circumstances I had owned 
make my, my, my mistakes. Like I had admitted to my mistakes. Okay. It is possible for the other person to look at his actions and think, right, that his actions are good and that he is the, the doer of his actions. This would be an obstacle to his prayer. So you see the, what he's saying here is that, wait a second, you pious person, that's not your own action. Allah is the one who gave you this action. Right? So from that perspective, we're even. He said, therefore, O self of mine, you should not make it insufferable for a broken-hearted man like myself. I am aware of my guilt. I confess my sins. At the same time, I am aware of what I ask, and I have faith in the beneficence of my Lord, whom I submit my entreaties. Look who's talking. This is a scholar who has dozens of books, hundreds of thousands of followers, and he's talking like this. And he's telling you, he's writing it in an in a, in a autobiography. May Allah help this soul who lacks good qualities. But so f- as far as I'm concerned, the confession of my guilt is my most valuable possession. Oh Allah, what am I bringing to you? The confession of my guilt. Amazing, amazing. He talks about his inner struggles. There's so much more. I want to keep reading, subhanAllah, but we can't, we have to move on, unfortunately. There's so much about, he talks about his personal experiences. He talks about his experience with women. Uh, not uh, with his, uh, interacting with women, etc. The death, all right, of a woman that he wanted to marry. Like he wanted to marry a woman, she died. What happened to him, right? Things like that, that inshallah one day we will maybe read directly from Sayyidul Khatr. It's a book worth, worth having. We have only a few minutes for Q&A. It's 3.20 now. And we have completed this book that you can get from meccabooks.com with the coupon code Safina. Wonderful book. Let's now turn to the Q&A. If you put a question, copy and paste it here because I don't want to uh, scroll up. Okay. And we have Soheba Wan here with us. And why don't and before we leave tonight, we are going to recite Dua An-Nur from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ryan has already uploaded it. All right, we will read that. Okay. Omar Dizman says, Can you give us a salah to help achieve dua? Uh, it's a long one. It's known as Salah Al-Kamila. Allahumma salli salatan kamila wa sallim salaman tamman ala Sayyidina Muhammadin alladhi tanhalu bil'uqad wa tinfariju bil'kurab tuqda bil'hawaj wa tunalu bil'raga'ib wa husnul khawatim wa yustasqal ghamamu biwajhil kareem wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam If you recite this dua, this dhikr, it's a dua. All salawats on the Prophet are dua, right? If you recite it a hundred times in the middle of the night with ikhlas, amazing things will happen to you. It's also known as As-Salah Al-Nariyah. You can find it. Salah Al-Kamil, As-Salah Al-Nariyah. Can we read to Tablis Iblis without any teacher? Yes. It's not a fiqh book or anything like that. So if you repented and made dua and did not see any trace of response, then look into your affair. What is meant by trace of a response? When Allah Ta'ala answers your dua, it doesn't just appear in front of you. There are signs that he will answer your dua, and there are signs that dua is being answered. So, for example, if I say, oh Allah, I'm, I'm broke. I need money. 
That's like 99% of the dua of the ummah. And then next day, you get an interview. There's a sign that dua will slowly be answered. Okay? Slowly being answered. You got to keep going until it's fulfilled. And sometimes, you may open the Quran to do your recitation and the first ayah is an answer of istijaba. You feel that Allah is answering me right there. I prayed and the first rook that I'm reciting with is fastajaba lahum rabbuhum. That's wonderful. That's amazing. So there, the istijaba to dua does not just happen like that. There are sometimes Allah informs you, yes, it's, it's mustajab, but it's not going to happen now. It takes some time. Others that you start seeing the answer to your prayers slowly. Should we fast for the first of Muharram? No, we fast on the 9th or 10th or 10th and 11th. How do you deal balancing a job and pursuing Islamic education? You work and you carve out a portion of time every week for studies and you study. But you have to have a consistent, like a curriculum or a teacher or a course, something that's systematic. Ja'far says, concerning Kalam and Aqeedah, is it true he was in Ash'ari? No, he was not in Ash'ari, but he was a mufawwid. And he made, he was strong in his tanzih of all the anthropomorphic seeming verses and hadiths. In his book, Dafah Shubah At-Tashbih Bi-Akaf Al-Tanzih. Refuting any thought of ill thought or incorrect thought of anthropomorphism with perfect and clear transcendence, tenzi. A local sheikh, says Jamal, claims that he can take us to see the prophets in the spiritual world within three days with some zikr. He says he can travel anywhere spiritually. Is this possible? I have no knowledge of this, to be honest with you. Sounds interesting. I have no knowledge of what he's saying, to be quite honest with you about the whole situation. How do you overcome the fear of death? Being scared of soul being taken out, missing your loved ones. Well, you think of the positives of death. Anytime that Allah wants you to face a fear, okay, He shows you the reward of that fear, like the beautiful thing behind it. You become so obsessed with the reward that you don't even think about the hardship. So think of the reward. The barzakh is a wonderful life. It's so wonderful. You're going to forget these dunya. You're going to forget your own family. That's how wonderful it can become. You'll forget your own family. That's how wonderful it can be. Okay? We don't worship our family, by the way. There's limits. Right? Your entire life is not meant to serve your family. Yes, you, you love them, you serve them, but there are limits to that too. Because if you don't put those limits, people could follow them even in the haram. Okay? Or even stifle themselves. Uh, I want to take a drink. Well, what will my family think? You're stifling yourself. Uh, maybe you want to get a job somewhere. I have to move five minutes away, but my family might be upset. You cannot, that's excess. There's excess in that, right? Ibrahim Khan, what is the key to finding a righteous spouse? Hang out with uh, the circles of righteousness, gatherings, masajid, etc. That's where a good woman will be, right? That's where good women will be. Maham has to go. Yes, you can go. Wa alaikum as-salam. And inshallah, we will get you a better macro-Nigerian joke. 
next time. Inshallah. Is it get married? Better to get married or stay single? If you're going to have fitna, you have to get married. Not have to, but it's sunnah to get married. If an imam was caught admitting to committing zina and then repented, Bushra is asking, I don't see how he can really be followed anymore, right? I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Many Salafis use Ibn al-Jawzi to argue against Tasawwuf, but he was actually arguing against the errors of Tasawwuf. Yes, he was arguing against the errors. What, Sufiya are innocent or something? They made mistakes like anybody else. They're human beings that have mistakes. And he railed against those. And he also railed against the Mujassima too, in his book, Dafa Shubat Tanzi. So they should use, take that and apply it themselves too. If they love what he said about the Sufis, I love it too. I also love what he said about the anthropomorphists. Okay. Some of these brothers, uh, we have a, 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 a sidebar on YouTube. When that translates to Instagram, we can't control it. Right. The, you know this website, they got to make a way where you can control the Instagram. They have to. The, the, the software that we use, they got to find a way where, like, but in the, in the uh, sidebar, they got to, we have to drag the sidebar to where we want it to be. Muslima says, what is the adab to observe when visiting grave of awliya? The adab that is if they were alive. Adab. In other words, you're just going to go there. You're going to make dua for them. Dua for everyone in the graveyard. You can recite Quran. You can intend the reward of the Quran to go to them. Either way, they're gonna, the dead, we believe that they hear. Muhammad Abdul Aziz, what's the consensus where Yajuj and Majuj are currently? Allah Alam. I don't think there's just somewhere under the earth. Amin says, how do you get into Jannah without Hisab? Try to be a martyr. Which means if you devote your life to Dawah and you die upon that, inshallah you'll be written as a martyr. Shaykh, what are Ash'aris? Ash'ari is a madhab in Aqidah. It is the madhab of the Shafi'is and Malikis in matters of beliefs. And the Hanafis are Maturidis and the Hanbalis are Hanbalis. Are there any known scholars who are illiterate? There's Abdul Aziz al-Dabbagh. Abdul Aziz al-Dabbagh was illiterate, but he had learned through Mukashafa, and the scholars tested him, and he was correct in being able to detect false hadith from sound hadiths. But this is not a methodology we're allowed to seek. No one could say, let me be so spiritual that I gain secret knowledge. No, you have to actually go and learn. Okay. This uh, next Thursday, we're going to see, inshallah, we're going to have, uh, as we get into Muharram, biography of Al Hussein, Sayyidina Al Hussein ibn Ali. Okay. How do you recite Salat al Kamila with ikhlas? Recite it understanding its meanings and knowing that it's a dua. 
strangest. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make a way out for you. And you should increase the recitation of La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntum al-zalimeen. I heard if you stay pious and be a good Muslim that Allah will grant you a spouse as part of your rizq. Is that true? The answer is yes. Inshallah, that's true. Okay. Inshallah, that's true. And there are a lot of ways to get a good spouse. Okay. A couple more questions. Madhab Ahl al-Madina with Sayyid Muhammad Alawi al-Maliki. He says, also, how to make the best tawbah. The best tawbah is by leaving off not just the sins, but all the triggers of the sins. So if you commit your sins at so-and-so's house, stop going to that house. If you commit your sins at a certain time, go to sleep at that time. The triggers, that's called saddadariya and wara. Okay. Let's see, what is it that um, Sophia says, can you please remind us of the fiqh of prayer while traveling? The traveler is of two states, on his way and having arrived at his visiting destination. On the way, you can shorten and combine with no limits. Shorten and combine dhuhr and asr, maghrib and aisha. The four rakahs become two. Iqama, salah, iqama, salah. In either of the two gaps of time. When you arrive, you are a traveler if you intend less than 20 prayers or four days. If you intend more, then you are considered a uh, hadr, you're present, you're not a traveler, so you pray in full. But if you are intending less, then you shorten, but you do not combine. This is the fiqh of the Maliki Madhab on this. So if you are someone who is intending to arrive at some, a place, let's say I'm going to go visit, let's say, Florida. I arrive at Florida, my intention is three days. How many prayers is that? Fifteen. Less than twenty? Okay, good. Then I may shorten, but not combine. That's the Maliki Madhab on this subject. The Shafi'iyah are different. And the Hanaf are different. And the Hanabla are different. So those are the madhabs that you can, you can ask those, the companions of those madhabs. Alright folks, we have to stop here. Let us, um, someone said that their, their grandmother has COVID. Nasif Shudri, Chowdhury. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give her a speedy shifa. Okay. All right, let's put up Dua and Nur, and let's pull it up here on. Let's pull it up here so we could read it, and we will recite this beautiful Dua. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Allahumma jalli nuran fi qalbi, nuran fi qalbi, wa nuran fi qabri, wa nuran fi sam'i. ونورا في بصري ونورا في شعري ونورا في بشري ونورا في لحمي 
ونورا في دمي ونورا في عظامي ونورا في عصبي ونورا من بين يدي ونورا من خلفي ونورا عن يميني ونورا عن شمالي ونورا من فوقي ونورا من تحتي اللهم زدني نورا وأعطني نورا واجعل لي نورا وصلى الله وبارك وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين Oh, baby.